This is an ABC podcast. This is David Rutledge. Hello and welcome to The Philosopher's Zone. Now, I'm a big fan of the essays of David Foster Wallace, the uh, American novelist and academic who died in 2008. And I'm a particularly big fan of an essay that he wrote about how boring and banal the memoirs of elite athletes are. Because the life of an athlete is all about high-level performance, and the trouble with high-level performance, according to this essay, is that there doesn't seem to be a whole lot to say about it. When you get to peek inside the mind of a pro tennis player and rummage around in there for clues to how they do what they do, you find that there's really just a lot of empty space. And David Foster Wallace closes his essay by wondering if maybe that's the special gift of every successful athlete, that they don't think that the secret of their amazing physical skill is an absence of mental activity, which makes them really good at sport, but really bad at autobiography. It's a very interesting and elegant and provocative essay, and I'm going to put a link to it on the Philosopher's Zone website. But is it correct? What do we think about the speculative conclusion that skilled performance is really a mindless phenomenon? Well, according to today's guests, the cognitive basis of skilled performance is actually highly complex and definitely has a mental component. But exactly how to define and talk about that mental component depends on how you choose to define and talk about the mind and what it means to think. Sean Gallagher is a professor of philosophy at the University of Memphis. He's also a professorial fellow at the University of Wollongong. And he's joined by Daniel Hutto, Senior Professor of Philosophical Psychology at the University of Wollongong. They're talking with producer Ian Robertson. There have been interests in skilled performance for a long time in philosophy. And there are some traditional approaches um, that really think of skilled performance more as an application of intelligence, where intelligence is often thought of as something happening in the head. And then the question is, how do you somehow or other make that intelligence operable in terms of movement, action, the type of performance that you find in something like sports or the performing arts? So the traditional uh, view is that all kinds of things are going on in the head, in the brain, but then if you are interested in what philosophers now call embodied cognition, uh, which we are, then you have to look at processes that are more embodied, more based in bodily processes. And that represents a challenge uh, to philosophers, a challenge that, uh, in fact, challenges a very long tradition in philosophy that suggests the body is not so important. If you think of the quintessential nature of minds as calculative, right, as reasoning systems, and a lot of people have, then it's interesting about how on the fly and in very kind of, in situations where a performer has to think very quickly, it raises questions about how they manage to, to make, you know, whether if you think of them in terms of making reason-based calculations, how do they do that quick enough? What mm. do they have to know? How does that all factor in? And other things that typically have been left to the sideline in some of the, the standard ways of thinking about minds when we think about them outside of these kind of everyday contexts is, you know, what part does emotion play? Um, so when we think about calculative minds, often in cognitive science, we haven't really always given enough attention to the emotional factors. So once you do, um, one of the main things that, that drew our interest in the 
uh, project that we were running on this was, you know, how do the these intelligent aspects really work if they're not going to be modeled on just reasoning processes? And also, how do they connect up with the emotional aspects of of skill performances. Right. So in some sense, there's a overturning or an example of where the body might be a lot more valuable in thinking than perhaps a lot of intellectual traditions would have tended to focus. So my second question then was inspired by the, the Mike Tyson quote. He uh, apparently once said that uh, every one of his opponents had a plan uh, until they got punched in the face. Now, that sounds unfortunate, but it does raise an important question about skilled performers. So one really impressive characteristic that they exhibit is that they're seemingly able to adjust to novelty, uh, the things changing, going right and wrong, even in the very heat of the moment. I think here of a dancer perhaps covering a misstep or a boxer adjusting strategy even whilst perhaps keeping out of range. Um, there doesn't seem to be a lot of time for thinking though, since they do these things very, very quickly. So how is it that performers just know how to adjust even in the very heat of the moment and under often quite stressful conditions? So, I mean, I think what's really telltale, even when you set that question up, is this idea that um, there's not enough time for thinking Mm-hmm. Because that kind of pushes us back to what I was saying a moment ago about what kind of thinking we think of as thinking, right? So if you think that thinking takes a lot of time or it's not a feature of these engagements themselves, then you think you need to accommodate or explain how that's possible. What the approaches that we've been pretty enamored to, uh, which usually travel under the heading of an active or embodied approaches to understanding the mind, is that they assume that the best model for minds is living systems interacting with their environments adaptively and intelligently. And they push against the idea of modeling minds on, as they are often artificially understood, computers and machines, right? And one of the key aspects of that is that a machine or a computer might have external instructions about how it should operate. Whereas these inactive approaches see mindedness as something that emerges quite naturally from the the regulatory behavior that just is part and parcel, a feature of living systems all the way down. So if you think of mind in deep continuity with living systems, then when you really look at this, skilled performances in precarious, unique systems where you can't come in pre-planned, you're just always improvising is really a feature, not a bug that has to be explained. It's just the normal situation for living minds. And so that that turns the tables on that standard way of thinking about the nature of this puzzle. Yeah, I think uh, getting punched in the face is not very skilled. <laughs> you don't need a lot of skill for that. Uh, what you need the skill for is to avoid getting punched in the face, right? And part of that is that if you look at motor control processes, uh, very, very uh, basic bodily processes, they are all uh, predicated on a kind of anticipatory attitude. Mm. Uh, We are always in a certain way looking ahead, Uh, not planning in any kind of big way, but but anticipating what might happen next. And that's an important factor that allows you to be able to pay some attention uh, or have some awareness of being able to duck, let's say, if a fist is coming towards you. 
Yeah, no, I'd say that's exactly right. And when we were working in the project, one of the themes that came up quite a lot was the idea that performers are poised at best, but not perfect. So practice makes you poised because mm. it gets you some anticipatory grip on what's going on, but it doesn't ever because you can't anticipate all possible factors. I mean, I would really want to stress that I think that that feature is what makes performances of interest to both performers and spectators, right? Every time we go, it's the particularities of that particular event, that particular performance that excite us. How will this be handled? So, you know, if there was any way to push that out with some perfect prediction, performances would be uninteresting to everyone involved. Right, so skill performers are able to anticipate and are poised to anticipate, but without relying on anything resembling intellectual conscious predictions, uh, or at least not all the time. So this may uh, throws up the issue of, of habits, right? And, and, and we're, we're often told that skill performers habitually respond in, in, in just the right way. This seems a little curious though. I mean, habits are often seen as useful but not really so smart. So I can habitually and on autopilot grab my coffee jar from the shelf in the morning, perhaps. But, you know, relying on habits can go wrong often. Uh, I can accidentally shake hands with someone despite COVID restrictions, just out of habit. I can take the wrong turning on a journey because it's not my usual destination, say. So how can habits help with the kind of intelligent and fluid action we see from skilled performers? Yeah, so of course, not all habits are good habits. <laughs> Sometimes they're bad habits. Um, but in terms of skilled performance, there have been some standard views of habit that really take habit to be something like automatic or repetitious. So a philosopher named Gilbert Ryle, a very early philosopher of mind, uh, thought that indeed um, habit is uh, not very smart. It's, it's simply a kind of automatic response. It's some kind of repetitious thing so that in any circumstance, habit means that you do exactly the same thing. As he said, it was the, the essence of habit that was a, a mere replication of its predecessor. I exactly, yeah. something yeah. Yeah, along that line. Yeah. But that view, I think, misses uh, something important about habit. And, and in fact, there are other... Um, thinkers in the pragmatic tradition, which take habit to be much more flexible, much more adaptive, much more responsive to changes in, in the situation. So someone like John Dewey would say that, in mm -hmm. fact, uh, repetition is not at all the essence of habit. And there we have to think of, of habit as intelligent and uh, something that we uh, can use in order to respond to changing circumstances. So if you are say, a batter uh, coming up to, to bat at cricket or American baseball, I would uh, be more familiar with, um, then you don't just do the same thing at every pitch. You have to be aware of your surroundings and your practiced movements are such that they can adapt to differences in those surroundings. Mm -hmm. And that's, that seems to be an important right, feature right. that uh, habit allows you to do. In some of the work, in fact, that you and I have done recently, I think it was important to go back to some uh, work by other authors in uh, who have tried to give an account of habits. And I was particularly impressed by work by Claire Carlyle on her book on habits. And uh, she makes a very neat way of making this point that habits have both 
resistance and receptivity, right? So they never lose that. So you might think of habits as essentially flexible in just this way. So again, I think if you perhaps rethink or broaden our understanding of what we mean by an intelligent response, then you think these things are adjustable. They're not infinitely adjustable, but they are adjustable to circumstances in the way that Sean was just describing, which means that a habit could get you into a position, right, from which you might develop a new habit or you might resist a new habit depending upon what circumstances give you each time. But that that gives you that flex, that adaptability. So if you think of habits like that rather than as just, you know, really blind stimulus response machines, that gives you a kind of interesting basis for thinking about the roots of skill performance. Then you need to know what's that extra element. How does the accommodating and adjusting go and how far extra dimensions come into that? But it, it gives you a solid basis for thinking about what might make you poised, right? So you're, you've got a baseline from which you can adjust in important ways. And you're going to always need to adjust because the, the, the situations are never the same. You're listening to The Philosopher's Zone, and this week, producer Ian Robertson is talking with Daniel Hutto and Sean Gallagher, both from the University of Wollongong, and both interested in the cognitive basis of skilled performance. There's a popular understanding of skilled performance that says when you're fully dialed in and you're rattling through the difficult section of a bark prelude or taking a shot at goal in World Cup football, it's an absence of mental activity that enables you to pull it off. But maybe there's a lot more going on inside the mind of an elite performer than we think. So what do you think the best current philosophical frameworks for thinking about uh, skill performance are? You both approach this topic from the perspective of something called an inactivist view of the mind. So what exactly, uh, for our listeners, what exactly is that? What's its big idea? And how might it pave the way for thinking a little about skill? Yeah, so let me start by saying that there are a number of different approaches to explaining or understanding uh, skilled performance. I would say one that belongs really to the long tradition of uh, philosophy uh, is, again, to emphasize cognitive processes. Uh, so there's a kind of intellectualist approach. And that says we, we think and we plan and uh, thinking uh, can be very quick and it enters into uh, uh, the performance and really guides it and basically uh, is in charge and in control of the performance. So that's an intellectualist view. There's another uh, type of view that comes out of some phenomenology, uh, some phenomenological uh, works, very much associated with Hubert Dreyfus, who goes the other extreme uh, to say that performance is, uh, when it's expert, when it's skilled, is really mindless. Uh, you, you, you don't think, uh, it, you just do, and that performance uh, is interrupted if you start reflecting about it or you start thinking about it. So we have to, in some sense, uh, get rid of the mind in order to become skilled performers. I believe he gave, just to interject for a second, I believe he gave examples of of baseballers uh, choking in virtue of concentrating on their movements too much. And in that sense, thinking for him 
just got in the way of the flow of skill performance. Exactly. Yeah, yeah. he emphasizes the flow uh, quite a bit. And choking is a real thing. Uh, it, there is some evidence that the wrong kind of reflection might, in fact, interrupt your, mm. your performance and interrupt the flow. So there's some truth there. But that's not the whole story, I think. Uh, so there, there are other people who try to create a kind of hybrid uh, version that tie the two intellectualists on one side and mindless uh, performance on the other side, tie them together in some way. Uh, but they tend to, these hybrid views tend to think of the intellectual intervening in some fashion, cognitive processes intervening on uh, very much uh, uh, what are considered automatic processes and the automatic motor control type processes. So they would like to talk about something like top-down interventions that will guide the more automatic processes in some way and make them smarter. And perhaps in some sense, that might be their conception of habit, that habit is the result of something like these cognitive processes doing things uh, and introducing control from a top-down perspective into these kind of dumb automatic motor control processes. Uh, and of course, that's, I think, what the inactivist would want to take issue with. Uh, but Dan probably uh, would want to say something about inactivism here. Yes, I mean, I think that that's exactly right. So when I'm listening to Sean there, listeners might know, if they know any philosophy of mind at all, you'll know something about Descartes and his vision of the mind as the grasp of propositions. And so there is a very strong tradition that sees mind as opposed to body, where the body is just a device or a mechanism, and all the intelligence comes from certain operations that the mind performs typically over things that represent the world. So we think about the world in certain ways and certain contentful ways, and that that is what separates mind and body. So what Sean just described in those options is usually to stick with that. It turns the body or any habitual thing into something quite uh, devoid of intelligence. Ryle uh, referred to this as the intellectualist legend, I believe. So he would... Uh say that intelligent action is intelligent only insofar as it's guided by a kind of grasp, an intellectual inner grasp of the truths of understanding of what's going on. Exactly, exactly. Right. So what's neglected in that is if, if we think that's the only way to think about minds as they exist in nature and in the world, then you're always going to be forced into this sort of set of options. What an activist have really said is that's just not the right starting point for our thinking about minds. And that's a very big change um, because it says, as I said earlier, that if we look at living things as the model of minds, then you're going to think that intelligence is all around us in the living world with all sorts of simpler creatures and organisms uh, exhibiting forms of intelligence that aren't like that at all. Uh, and if we can get that as a starting point, now here's the interesting part. Um, that's going to apply just as much to humans as it does to other animals. So that makes that connection stronger. So we start to think of even our forms of mindedness when it comes to skilled performance as much more intrinsically embodied, much more constitutively embodied uh, and engaged, adaptive in the ways that I was talking about earlier. So, so it's kind of a breaking the spell of that particular intellectualist backdrop against which most thinking about these topics has has gone on. So I would say that that is the inactivist's big idea. Uh, there are many different kinds of inactivism, but uh, nowadays the, the idea has been articulated 
for roughly 30 years or so and is gaining a lot of ground in, in the cognitive sciences. So it's become a real competitor. Well, it might be pertinent to ask now, um, your big idea is, is that in activism, we should embrace a particularly radical form of inactivism. You call it radical inactivism. And I guess one question might be, uh, what is that relative to the inactivist project? And why is it so radical? Right. Um, well, radical, the notion of radical, of course, just means goes to the roots of issues. So in a sense, given what I just said, you want one that doesn't retain elements of that other tradition if we're going to get the benefits of a real rethink about the nature of mind. So it's radical in that respect. And in fact, there were some interesting uh, developments in philosophy of mind and cognitive science around the development of sensory motor theories back in the day, where whilst I think they really emphasize the importance of the interactions and connection between action and perception, they nonetheless tended to, I think, retain elements of that other tradition, which was more intellectualist. So the position is also radical in the sense that it didn't conserve any of those elements. It pushed very strongly against those. And I think that's more in the spirit of the original version of an activism that was articulated famously in a uh, 1991 book called The Embodied Mind by Varela, Thompson, and Roche. So the, it's radical in, in, in really holding fast to that point that I was making a moment ago, that we don't want to have computational, calculative, representational processes as the basis of minds. And that's been our kind of signature a claim that the basis of minds is, or basic minds as we talk about them, don't have those features. So radical inactivism then and the, the broader inactivist project is trying to push away from the intellectualized notion that all skilled and intelligent action must involve or is intelligent in virtue of being guided by a kind of intellectual inner brain-bound notion of grasping truths. That's, ex that, that's the idea. That's exactly right. And, and one can see how skilled performance could be a wonderful test case of that and the intelligence involved uh, there. Um, so one other aspect then moving away from seeing uh, skilled performance as purely a matter of, of the intellect is um, work, Sean, that you've conducted um, pertaining to emotions and empathy entering skill performance. So what are some of the examples of, of emotions featuring in, in examples of skill performance in general? Yeah, I think there's a lot of factors that have been ignored in more standard views of skill performance. And one of them is mm -hmm. affect or emotion. Uh, affect is a, a broader term, I think, that includes certain embodied uh, practices, uh, or, or uh, let me put it this way, uh, certain bodily type processes uh, that have to do with uh, get manifested, for example, in hunger or fatigue. So you could think of affectivity in a very broad sense. Uh, it also includes emotion. And those types of things definitely do enter into performance. Uh, you can think of uh, in sports, Back at the university, I used to play ice hockey. And uh, it turns out that in ice hockey, there's many more fights that seem to break out <laughs> in contrast to some of the other sports. And I always wondered about that. And uh, I don't have any scientific studies about this, but I, I suspect it's something uh, about the fact that you carry a stick, a hockey stick, uh, 
and you have your hands clenched around the stick and just sort of the posture and the instrumentation that you have available uh, makes uh, becoming angry a little bit easier on the ice. That's one not very good type of emotion to experience in something like sports or performance. A better emotion, perhaps, and, and if you consider it an emotion, uh, is empathy, where empathy can be a, a very important component in some respects. So here I've, I've drawn on uh, my daughter's work. So my daughter is, uh, Julia, is an actress. And so we've, we've written about acting and the importance of empathizing with one's character as part of the skill of acting. This depends to some extent on the various methodologies that one, one uses to, to approach their acting uh, performance. Uh, but nonetheless, empathy can be an important factor in that type of process. It doesn't necessarily mean that it's uh, something that is important in all performances. And that's a point I think that, that is important. And uh, I think it's a point having to do with being careful not to make very broad claims, uh, but to rather to look at uh, empirically at instances of performance and to try to take your guidance from the phenomena itself before trying to generalize. Yeah, I say I don't have, um, I'm not very sporty myself. I'm, I'm a bit booky, uh, bookish, you might say, but you can kind of see how this would spread easily into all forms of performing. So I, we used to play, um, not ice hockey, thankfully, but a uh, little less aggravated versions of table tennis in uh, the periods between lessons in, in high school. And it just reminded me what Sean was saying, though, how much you can see how the emotions will regulate a performance, right? So if you've got somebody who tends to slam at you, you might get frustrated after a while and then try to respond. And here you can think about keeping your cool, but notice like this, I mean, the usual contrast between the emotion and the intellect, right? But here you're trying to regulate your embodied tendency to be frustrated or excited, which your opponent may try to do deliberately, right? They may try to pull you in so that you are off your game. I mean, I just remember one of my high school mates who loved to slam ping pong balls at me. And, and, and my whole, my, even at the time, part of my poise was not to respond to that except to just, you know, try to return them or, or hold a different kind of serve back. So that's right. So, so if we think of it like that, emotions will make a large difference in performing of all kinds, um, both from the kind of uh, performing arts all the way through to musical performances, all the way through to, you know, sporting performances and competitions. So I think that's one of the things that really was central in our, active, in our, in our project was to put emotions back into the, into the mix. You know, I, th I think also this is why the idea that performance is something mindless uh, just doesn't work. I think uh, it, one requires a kind of mindful attitude, especially for uh, emotion regulation. And uh, that itself uh, suggests that we should think of the mind in a broader way to include some, uh, emotions and to include all of those affective processes that uh, pertain to uh, bodily existence. Sean Gallagher, Professorial Fellow in the Faculty of Law, Humanities and the Arts at the University of Wollongong. He's also a philosophy professor at the University of Memphis in Tennessee. And you also heard there Daniel Hutto, Senior Professor of Philosophical Psychology at the University of Wollongong. 
So we're talking with producer Ian Robertson, and this episode of The Philosopher's Zone was created in partnership with the Australasian Association of Philosophy and recorded on the lands of the Gadigal people of the Eora Nation. I'm David Rutledge. Thanks for your company, and I hope you can join me next time right here in The Philosopher's Zone. Bye for now.